So if you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1, we're going to continue looking at some uh, passages in Philippians and uh, examine what they might have for us this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 11. Philippians 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you that as we are reading this passage, it fills our hearts with joy to consider the great lengths that you, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit went to to bring us back to yourself, to rescue us, to bring us salvation. And we consider the great uh, sacrifice of your son, we, we say amen that he is highly exalted, that you have given him a name above every name, and that we would ourselves declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, as we consider the days in which we live, we are bombarded by news and events that threaten our confidence, that shake us at times to the core, wondering about the future, wondering about the present, concerned about our loved ones, our family, our friends, worried at times about our personal income or our financial standing. And yet, as your people, we would affirm again this morning to one another that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so we would pray that as we are here in this passage, meditating on this passage this morning, that your spirit might teach us, that we might, as Paul says, cultivate the mind of Christ, that our attitude would be the same that he had, that we have the mind of Christ because we have the Holy Spirit within us, and that as your people, we can allow this mind to permeate our thinking, our thoughts, to have the attitude that Jesus had toward life and circumstance and our position and our well-being, and just look to you, O God, that we might do this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in chapter 1, has declared that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he is encouraging the Philippians and us by the Holy Spirit to consider what is our life? What is the purpose of our life? And when we come to chapter 1, verse 27, we see here that Paul is going to tell the Philippians that they need to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's interesting there that the word uh, manner, the word that is their manner, is a word that we get in the Greek language, words like polite and politics from. It's the idea of how you behave as a citizen. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of different disagreement about what it means to be a citizen of the United States. On the one hand, we see people advocating that being a good citizen means sheltering in place, shuttering your businesses. It means being isolated from loved ones and family, that that's what it means to be a good citizen. And then others have said, no, to be a good citizen means that we need to challenge the edicts of a government that perhaps is just making things up as they go along, or by fiat decreeing things that perhaps trample civil liberties and civil rights. And so across the land, there is a debate about what it means to be a good citizen at this point in American history. And perhaps there's truth on both sides. And perhaps there's a measure of, of consensus that can be built over time. I don't know. But I do know this that as Christians, our citizenship is not here, that our citizenship is in heaven. And it's interesting that when the Apostle Paul was writing this to the Philippians, that concept of citizenship would have been very important to them, because Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi was an extension of Rome. It had been bestowed a special status by Augustus when they had helped him in his war against Mark Antony. And even though Philippi was in a different part of, of, of Europe and it was separated by miles from Rome, the people of Philippi considered themselves Roman, that they were governed by Roman law, Roman culture, Roman values. They were Romans, even though they lived in a different land and in a different city. They considered Rome to be their polis, their city-state, and they were proud of it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Paul was so um, uh, disturbing to the authorities there when he announced that they had beaten him and arrested him without trial, him being a Roman citizen. The magistrates were terrified because that was the one thing that they could not do. They violated Roman law. They violated Roman custom by punishing, arresting and punishing a Roman citizen without trial. It was very threatening to them. It was very disturbing to them. And they begged Paul. They were pleading with Paul not to make a big stink about this. 
And so when Paul uses this very term, this idea of behaving like a citizen, they would have understood what that meant. They would have understood that being a citizen brings you rights and privileges, that being a citizen gives you responsibilities and obligations. But what citizenship is he talking about? He's talking about the citizenship that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That by embracing the good news of Jesus, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose physically from the grave on the third day, by receiving the gift of eternal life through grace and faith, by having our lives born again from above by the Spirit of God, we transfer our citizenship from any earthly kingdom, domain, or power and have been translated into, into the kingdom of the Son of his love. That we are now citizens of a new kingdom, a new world, a new country. And we look forward to that as we wait for the coming of our king. And Paul is saying, I want you to live this way. I want you to stand firm in one spirit. I want you to have one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That as the gospel is good news, it's a good news that needs to be fought for. It's a good news that needs to be spread. And there's going to be opposition. There's going to be resistance. And yes, that resistance is actually testimony of the truth of the gospel. And God is going to give us the victory and the deliverance in it. He goes on to say that there is a privilege that comes with being a member of this citizenship. He says in verse 29, it has been granted to you. This is a gift that God has given for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And of course, when we think of suffering, we don't think of it as a privilege to suffer. We don't think of it as a privilege. We might think of it as a responsibility to suffer well. We might consider suffering a duty or an obligation of being in a sin-cursed world. We might accept the idea that suffering is something that goes with life, and we just have to endure it and grin and bear it. But the idea that suffering for Christ's sake is a privilege is not often something that I personally entertain in my mind. And the reality is, is that as believers living in a sinful world, we're going to be surrounded by circumstances that are going to produce suffering in our lives. There is no trial, Paul says in Corinthians, that we experience that is not common to all people. Temptation and trials come to all of us. But how we bear up under them and how we approach them is going to be a mark of our citizenship in heaven. And the Apostle Paul wants to remind us that when we suffer, especially for the cause of Christ, especially for the gospel, it is a privilege to do so. For that is why he was in prison. That is why he was under house arrest. That is why he was chained to a Roman soldier. As he says in verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And so the Apostle Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort or consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. So the the transition here is, again, this idea that we have great blessings. We have a citizenship in heaven. We have the privilege that comes from being the children of God. 
And this is our life. Christ is our life. And he goes on there and he says, if there's any encouragement, if there's any consolation, if there's any fellowship, if there's any compassion and affection. We need to understand that Paul is using a rhetorical device here. It's not that there is a question here, like, is there? Is there any of these things? No, that's not the device. It's not a question like there's some uncertainty here. It's a rhetorical question where you already know the answer. The answer is affirmative. The answer is yes, you have these things. So it's been observed by many commentators that you could take the word if and to flip it around in our minds and say since. Since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have a consolation of love, since there is a fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion, fulfill my joy. I'll ask you, have you received encouragement from your union with Christ? You know, sometimes in the midst of crisis and conflict, it's when we begin to realize and appreciate what it means to be joined together with Jesus, to realize that, that the worst thing that could happen to us is that we die, and that, as Paul said, to depart is to be with Christ, which is far better. And there is a comfort that comes from our relationship with Jesus because we recognize that God is for us. He is with us. He is in us. What greater comfort, what greater encouragement could we get? And we think about the love that God has for us and the consolation in that love, the comfort of that love, the idea that there is a, a, a love that God has for us that transcends our faults and failures and fears and inadequacies. Have we ever been comforted by the love of God? The fellowship of the Spirit. You know, when we are alone and we feel alone, if we're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are never alone. I was thinking to myself that one of the worst things about the COVID pandemic is that when we are hospitalized with this disease, when someone goes into the hospital, with this disease, they are then isolated from everyone that they love. And the reality is, is that there's no more painful experience for a spouse or a parent or a child to see their loved one pass this from this life in isolation. Uh, the, the difficulty about the COVID is this isolation, this sense of being alone. And, you know, I think to myself, if that were to happen to me, what would be my comfort? What would be my help in this situation? I mean, we'd all like to be surrounded by loved ones when we die. We'd all like to be surrounded by people who care about us. We'd all like to be, you know, embraced by the people that have loved us best all our lives. And yet, Paul says there is a fellowship of the Spirit. And I think about the moment that Stephen passed, the first martyr in the church. And I think about how. Rather than be surrounded by friends and companions and loved ones, he was surrounded by a hostile audience. That when he looked around at the faces who were looking at him, 
in the final moments of his life, there was not a friendly face in the crowd. There was not a warm expression. There was not a single person there who offered him any consolation, any comfort, any encouragement. The only thing he saw was hatred in the eyes of the people who surrounded him. At the very last moments of his life, he was surrounded by people who wanted to kill him. And yet, what does he say? I see Jesus standing. And in that moment, he understood that even though he was surrounded by an angry mob, he was not alone. For the Holy Spirit was in him and opened heaven that he might see the risen Christ. And so as we go through this, we see that Paul is saying, look, I want you to fulfill my joy. I want you to be um, the, 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 a certain way. I want you to actually live a certain way. And in the book of Philippians, the emphasis is on unity. It's on fellowship. It's about being together. And how does Paul want them to fulfill his joy? By having the same mind, having the same love, having the same spirit being of one accord. He doesn't want them to act selfishly. He doesn't want them to be focused on themselves only. He wants them to look out for the interests of others. In other words, he's picking up the same theme of living like a citizen of heaven in verses 27 that he is now bringing up in this, in this early part of chapter two. Sounds good. But if you look at that, right, you start to say to yourself, how is this possible? How is it possible that we could actually regard others as more important than ourselves? When nature tells us that human beings are driven by self-interest primarily, that we are often motivated by selfishness and self-interest, that even the most altruistic actions on our part can often be a mask for selfish reasons which is why Paul would say do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. How is it possible? And the apostle Paul tells us that it's possible if we have the same attitude that Jesus had. It's interesting when we talk about theology and study theology, we often take theology and we examine it in a systemic way. We call it systematic theology. And so we have, for example, the theology of Christ. But it's fascinating to me that when the Bible does theology, it doesn't separate theology from life. You know, a lot of times people create this, this dichotomy between doctrine and life. And they, you know, doctrine is something intellectual, it's something heady, it's something for really like academic people. But, you know, give me, you know, good verses about how to live my life for God. That's not how the Bible does systematic theology. The Bible does systematic theology by living it out. And what we find here is one of the greatest passages regarding the person of Christ. And what is the context? It's not a systematic theology class. It's not a treatise on Christology or who Jesus is. It's about humility. It's a teaching about church and church life. It's a, a, a discussion about selflessness and community. And in the context of that, we read these words, 
have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Books have been written about this. Scholars have broken themselves in trying to understand this. And we, as we look at this passage in this few minutes we have left, we must admit that we are like Moses treading on holy ground. But the reality is that this is the mind of Christ that we're supposed to embrace. This was the attitude that Jesus had as the one who came to earth. And so in verses 6 through 8, we find the descent of Christ. We find the descent of the Son of God, who, being in the very nature God, who existed in the form of God. Now, this is a very interesting play on words. The word exists here carries with it more than just the idea of being but it carries with it a force. It's a forceful Greek word. It, it, it actually says this was true in the past and continues to be true even to the present time. And so it's not just simply the verb to be, but rather it's the idea of being and continuing to be. And so here we see that Jesus existed he was in the form of God and continues to be in that form. And of course, then, of course, what do we say when we think of the word form? What does that mean? And in English, we think of the word form most often as the idea of a shape. We think of shape, like the shape of God, but that's not the concept behind the word form here. The word form here is more much likely to the, to the word we get morpho morphology from. And it's not the, the biological use of that word morphology, which talks about the bone structure and the structure and anatomy of, of animals and plants, but the linguistic concept in terms of meaning, in terms of meaning. In other words, the word form here refers to the outward display of the inner reality or the essential form of something which never alters. Spiros Iliades, a Greek scholar, says this, no one could be in the form of God who is not God. Um, I'm happy that my brother has joined us. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to beg his forgiveness. I'm going to use him as an example. Um, my brother is a very gregarious man. And when he gets going, he can have everyone in the room laughing. In fact, it becomes almost like a thing to look forward to at family gatherings. But on those special occasions when he has gotten us all laughing, my mom will turn to us and say, your brother is in rare form tonight. Now, when we use that expression, what are we saying? What we're saying there in that moment is that my brother is being the best version of himself. And of course, the reality is that uh, no one else could be in Matt's rare form than Matt. 
He has to be the one. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And so when we use that word in that context, we're not talking about a shape, a physical appearance. We're talking about what's inside becoming expressed externally. And so we have a situation where that expression becomes visible. And that's what this means when it talks about Jesus. That he was the expression of all that is God. The essential nature of God. The essential being of God. And of course, what do we find? He says here that equality with God was not something to be grasped. As one commentator makes, it wasn't that Jesus was trying to achieve equality with the Father. He had it, and he chose not to cling to it. Jesus' divine nature was not something he had to seek or acquire, but it was his already. It was not a treasure he had to cling to. You know, depending on how your Bible translation translates this passage, it sometimes says he did not think it robbery to be equal with God. Other translations say he did not think it uh, something to be grasped at. When we think about ourselves, right, when we think about who we are as people, we're always grasping. We're always clinging. We're always reaching out. This past week, I read this by Henry Nguyen in the book Out of Solitude. Underneath all our emphasis on successful action, many of us suffer from a deep-seated low self-esteem and are walking around with the constant fear that someday someone will unmask the illusion and show that we are not as smart or as good or as lovable as the world was made to believe. I don't know about you, but I've had that feeling many times in my life that I'm faking it, that if people really knew who I was, they would recognize I'm not really as lovable as I appear to be. And you see, when, when that's the case of who we are, we're always grasping. It's why we're jealous at times, because we're holding on to our trinkets, and we're afraid that someone will come along and take what we think is rightfully ours. It's why we're envious because we look at someone else's treasures or trinkets and we think they have more than us and it threatens us and it makes us feel inferior and insecure and it highlights the fact that we feel like we're not somebody important or lovable or that we're worth anything. It's why we're covetous because we wanna rob what others have from us because what they possess, we believe if we had it would help fill that emptiness that's in our own souls. It's why we're greedy because we want more. We keep trying to find that thing which will fill the void that's in us. And when we think about Jesus, equality with God was not something he had to grasp. It was not something he had to cling to. He was so thoroughly aware, convinced, assured of his position as the second person of the Trinity. It was not something that was in doubt, ever. It was not a treasure he clung to, but rather it was something he was willing to lay aside. Not his essential nature, but all the prerogatives that came with that nature. All the 
rights and privileges that came with being the son of God. He went from being everything to being nothing. If we can comprehend that, he emptied himself. He became nothing, some translations say. How is that possible? When we consider the distance that separates us as human beings from God, when we consider that the one who is without limit was contained in a virgin's womb, when we consider the one who is from all eternity, the father of eternity, has a birthday, when we consider the fact that the creator assumed the appearance of a creature, that this transformation, this addition to who he was, was so dramatic. And it goes further than that. Like people talk about the greatest of all time, they talk about like different football quarterbacks or baseball players of being the greatest of all time. Well, Jesus was the greatest man of all time. And yet Paul tells us in Romans that he came in the likeness of sinful men. He didn't appear as Adam. You know, Adam without sin, Adam perfect in creation. Jesus assumed a physical appearance in the likeness of sinful men. His physical appearance did not distinguish him. He wasn't particularly handsome. He wasn't particularly tall or attractive. The Bible tells us this. And not only that, his descent goes further. He becomes a servant. And of course, he said that himself. He said, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve the one who was attended by angels and worshipped from all eternity. Now, girds himself with a cloth and washes his disciples' feet. But it goes further. It says here that he humbled himself to the point of death. Why? He goes from being just a he goes from being a man and a servant to being a criminal. When he's arrested, he says to those coming for him, "Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me?" I mean, think about this, right? What human weapon could ever be created that could capture the Son of God? And he goes from being a man and a servant and a criminal to being a corpse. A dead body. Crucified. A criminal's death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. What is that name? The name is Jesus. The very name they hung over his head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, in mock salutation. That's the name. The name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so we have here this encapsulation of the doctrine of Christ, his incarnation, his crucifixion our salvation, his ascension and exaltation. And it's all in the context 
Don't be selfish. Put others first. Be kind to one another. Love one another. Be of one mind, one spirit. Strive together for the gospel. You want to know how? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we've had to meditate on this passage. And we do pray that we keep our eyes on Jesus. In the midst of chaos and confusion, in the midst of conflict, we pray that your spirit might continue to speak to us and that our hearts might resonate with your truth and that we might have the same attitude that was in Jesus, our Savior. We would again remind ourselves and affirm and declare with one voice and heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.